You guys doing well? Good to have you with us. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke, Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. We'll be looking at verses 25 through 37. This is our Gospel in Life teaching series, Grace Changes Everything, number seven of an eight-part series, talking about justice, a people for others. Quick announcement, if you were not with us last weekend, nor did you, if you didn't hear it online, I made a, a brief announcement just giving you an update where we are with our building. This is family-only information. We're under contract. We don't want to disrupt the current uh, tenant relationship, and so just keep it within the family. And uh, we signed this last week, um, within the last two weeks, we have signed all documents uh, for purchase of our building over there for the loan and then working uh, with the architect currently. And uh, we're in the due diligence period of time, so uh, pray all goes well and God is glorified. I'm excited. It's going to be great. It's awesome. Praise God. Praise God. This may be a little bit too ambitious, but we're going to try to be in by Easter of uh, 2013. So pray that all goes well. Thank you guys so much for your regular and consistent uh, giving and faithfulness and involvement in ministry. And we'll certainly talk more about it with this uh, particular teaching. Let me start off by asking you a question. I want you to discuss it with the folks sitting around you. It goes along with that video you just saw. But uh, what is the difference between a said faith and a real faith? I know a lot of people that say that they're Christians, but sometimes uh, I'm not sure that they know the difference between a said faith and a real faith. What do you think the people around you uh, understand as it relates to that question? What's the difference between a said faith and a real faith? Real quick, discuss it with the folks around you, and we're going to head into our teaching in just a few moments. So what do you guys think? Some of you think you might know the difference between a said faith and a real faith. I mean, it's, it's pretty important. Would you say that's pretty important? Because there's a lot of people who claim to be Christians, but are they really Christians? And hopefully your def definition as you were discussing this was based on what the Bible says, and hopefully that you don't have just a said faith, but you really have a real faith. It's a true faith. In fact, it, it goes along with what we're talking about here today. Take a look at your sermon notes, the intro that justification leads to justice. A real faith will lead to social justice. Or another way put, justice is a sign of a real faith. You've heard me say throughout this teaching series that if the gospel isn't the most amazing message you've ever heard, then you haven't heard it. In other words, a, a real faith is going to be seen in the fact that it's going to rock your world. It will ravish and transform your heart, move you out into community, getting involved in a local church family like Desert Breeze, and then even not just on weekend services, but getting involved even more so than this in small groups so you can hang out with other fired up Christians like yourself. But then it's going to move you out beyond the walls of this church and beyond your small group into the world because you're going to want to share your faith with the world. Now, let me give you a definition. It's there on your notes, a definition for justification. This is big. I mean, this is why I'm a believer today, and it's because of this defini definition and distinctiveness between 
all the religions of our world today versus Christianity. You need to know this, and you need to understand this, but as it relates to justification, all other religions say, live as you should, and God will accept you. Every religion has a standard that you must live up to, and when you do, then God will accept you. Christianity says God accepts you through Jesus Christ, therefore you will live as you should. Can you see, can you track with me on that? So justification, when you understand your acceptance through the cross of Jesus Christ, it revolutionizes your life and moves you out into the world to be a gospel messenger and a gospel neighbor. In fact, take a look at the definition for justice. We're reading the story of the Good Samaritan. So justice is about being a Good Samaritan, meeting needs with loving deeds. I gave you some cross-references there. For justification, Romans 5.1 is a good one. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But notice James as it relates to justice. This is what James says. He's pretty hard-hitting. He says, if you see someone in need and all you do is kind of give them lip service, you just kind of give them words, hey, well, I hope things go well for you, and you don't enter into their life to support them or to help them, James says, faith without works is what? It's dead. So, justification leads to justice, or justice is a sign of justification. It's almost, we could say it like this. See if, you, see if you get this. This is kind of, if you don't get anything else, get this. This is an understanding of where we're headed with this, with this teaching. It's about the proclamation and the demonstration of the gospel. So if you're really a disciple of Jesus Christ, you will proclaim it. You will look for opportunities to share your faith with others. But more than that, you're going to demonstrate it in how you relate to others. You're going to do this. You're going to want to show them what a friend they have in you, demonstration, so that you can tell them what a friend they have in Jesus, proclamation. They go hand in hand. Now, we're going to study the second part halfway in, towards the end of Luke chapter 10. Now, anytime you study the Bible, it's always important to understand the context. And there's kind of a literary context as we work through this. And Luke chapters 1 through 9, it's asking the question, who is Jesus? And then we come to chapter 10. From 10 to, to chapter 18, it answers the question, what does it mean to follow Jesus? It's just basically giving us what it means to have a real faith. And, and so the first part of Luke 10, so we've come to Luke 10, answering the question, what does it mean to follow Jesus? And the first part of Luke 10, we won't read it, we're going to read the second part, but the first part basically says that disciples are gospel messengers. The part we're reading is that disciples are gospel neighbors. So gospel messengers, word, gospel neighbors, deed. Gospel messengers, proclamation, gospel neighbors, demonstration. That's where we're headed. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. And we're going to dive into our text and unpack these notes. Father God, open the eyes of our hearts to the study of your word and the work of your Holy Spirit so that we can see more clearly the beauty and the glory of the great Samaritan Jesus Christ that this story of the good Samaritan that we are about to read ultimately points to. May we see that he, Jesus Christ, is everything we've ever wanted and more. 
infinitely and eternally more. That He is our most satisfying reality. And out of, out of the spiritual wealth we have through faith in Him, may the proclamation and demonstration of the gospel, word and deed of the gospel, contagiously overflow our lives into the world we live in. For Your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Let's take a look at this text. I'll read, you can follow, chapter 10 of Luke, starting with verse 25, and behold, a lawyer, this is a religious lawyer, just to clarify, religious lawyer, stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, talking to Jesus, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, this is Jesus responding, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind. And your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, this is Jesus responding to this lawyer, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, and he goes through this and gives us this story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Now this is the lawyer responding. He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. So this is where we're going. Three questions. Who is a gospel neighbor? Who is someone who has a real faith? This is what we're talking about here. Gospel neighbor. Second question we're looking at is what does a gospel neighbor do? Third question, why should I be a gospel neighbor? So let's unpack this. You'll notice that I give you cross-references. Your best commentary for Scripture is always Scripture. You can see the cross-references there. Matthew 22, 34 through 40, and Matthew 28, 16 through 20. That is the great commandment and the great commission. It goes in hand with what we're talking about here because a gospel neighbor will take seriously the great commandment, which is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, love your neighbor as yourself, and the great commission is going out and making disciples. If you're a disciple, you will be a disciple maker. So, let me ask you this question. Why did this religious law expert ask Jesus a question? Did you, were you able to see that in the story? Why did he ask them a question? How many would say that he was interested in getting to know Jesus more and really had a passion for, for Jesus? Show of hands. No, actually, it, was, it tells us in verse 25, it was to trap Jesus. It's interesting, I have a number of people that will ask me questions, and I can sometimes discern, not always, but sometimes I can discern where they're coming from, because sometimes people are asking questions out of pride, and sometimes people are asking questions out of humility. 
There's a major difference when you're dealing with people and trying to help them navigate the issues of their life. This is out of pride. He's just trying to trap Jesus. He doesn't really care about any information or growing in his relationship with Christ. And so Jesus, certainly, and as you, as you read through the Gospels, you see that he attracted the irreligious, those who broke all the rules. So this lawyer wanted to discredit Jesus by exposing his liberal attitude toward the law. You know, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And the lawyer was really expecting Jesus to say, hey, it doesn't matter how you live, God accepts everyone. But Jesus comes back with the question, what is written in the law? How do you read it? It's always a great way to respond is to come back with a question because this is what Jesus is up to. His question is not out of a question of pride, but it's a question of love. He's trying to get this person, this, this lawyer, to start thinking deeper about the issues at hand and in, within his own life. And by the way, this lawyer could have responded a couple of ways. He could have gone through and started listing all the six to 700 rules. Or, as was common in this day, they would give kind of a summary statement in which Jesus used through the, what is called the great commandment, a summary statement of the law. What is... What is the law all about? It's about loving God with all your heart, loving your neighbor as yourself, and that's what this man did. Now, let's dive into this because this defines for us who is a gospel neighbor, and this is what I want you to think about. Do you have a real faith or just a said faith? If you have a real faith, these are going to be the characteristics that are going to make up your life. So, it is someone who, so who is a gospel neighbor? It is someone who loves God with their Thoughts, emotions, actions, more than anything. We see that in verse 27. As he responded, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Now, after you fill in the blank, take a look up here. Let me give you a couple quotes. Bishop William Temple said it this way to help us to understand what it means to love God with all of our heart, with all of our being, literally, is what it's saying. He said this, what you do in your solitude is your true religion. Timothy Keller helps us to unpack that statement by making this statement, and I quote, the true God of your heart is what your thoughts effortlessly go to when nothing else is demanding your attention. So let me ask you this, where does your mind love to dwell? Where does it instinctively and naturally go? Does it love to dwell on God? His attributes, His beauty, His glory, wherever it goes is your real God. Two hard-hitting questions for you as it relates to loving God with all your being. Do you love God so much that He dominates your solitude? I mean, just what are you thinking about right now? Some, some of us, our minds are like, ah, football game, later on today, woo-hoo. I mean, it kind of tells you a little bit. So do you love God so much that he dominates your solitude? Here's another one. Do you love God so much, loving God with all your heart, do you love God so much that you are content regardless of the circumstances in your life because you know you have what you want most, and that's God? Wait, 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 Pastor Ray, I, you know, I love God, but He doesn't like dominate my thoughts. Why not? If God is who the Bible says He is, the source of the, the greatest satisfaction, like, wouldn't, wouldn't, it, wouldn't it be uh, 
Wouldn't it make sense that our hearts would, would gravitate there, that we would want to, to dwell on Him, think about Him, think about His attributes, live in the, in the midst of His glory and His goodness and, and celebrate His presence in our life 24-7? Wouldn't that be normal Christianity? Well, that's, that's what He's saying. Well, well, nobody does that, do they, Pastor Ray? Yeah, you're right. I don't think anybody does. I don't even do that. I tend to battle my thoughts oftentimes throughout the day, and I can honestly say that there are many times God doesn't dominate my solitude, and even this past week, there were times that I didn't love God so much that I was content in all circumstances because I knew I had what I wanted most, and that was God. I, did, I don't always live there. I would like to more but, but it even gets worse than that. That's just, that's the first thing that, uh, that that understanding gives to us. That if you have a real faith, He's going to dominate your solitude. You're going to find such contentment in Him because of your love for Him that no matter what goes down in your life, you can face it with, with courage and confidence. Yeah, but who does that? Who lives there? None of us do. None of us do. In the truest sense. Here's the next one. Okay, thought that was hard. It's going to really get hard. This is going to really get quiet. It's pretty quiet in here right now, and it's going to get even quieter because here's the next one. So it is someone who meets the needs of their neighbors with the same amount of thought, emotion, and action. They would meet their own needs. So that's what he was saying. Love God with all of, love your neighbor as yourself. So love your God with all of your heart, dominate your solitude, unbelievably content in all circumstances, and then meeting the needs of of your neighbors with the same amount of thought, emotion, and action that they would meet their own needs. So here's it, here it is. Okay. See if you've ever done this. You and a coworker are competing for the same promotion, but your coworker gets it instead of you, and you are as happy for him as if it were you getting the promotion. Anybody? I know some of you are saying, Are you kidding? Is he for real? He can't be for real. How many have ever done that before? Wow. Unbelievable. In other words, here's what it is. You are as happy when your neighbor's needs are met as much as when your needs are met because you, you put your happiness inside their happiness or their well-being. This isn't codependency, okay? I'm not saying that you enable people. I'm not saying you allow people to sin against you. Any, none of that. I'm talking about that you're just as excited for their well-being as you are your own. What makes you happy is what makes them happy. Nobody does that. Nobody. We struggle with that even within marriage relationships. Even more so, should we see it there? None of us love God with all of our heart. None of us love our neighbor as ourselves. In the, in the truest sense. Because that's what those, that's what, what he's saying when it comes to, well, what's the law all about? It's about those two commandments. Now, now here's the next thing that you need to keep in mind. So who is a gospel neighbor? It is someone who loves God with all of his heart, someone who loves his neighbor as himself. But here's the third thing. Knows, knows that these don't give life, but proves that you have life in Christ. Did you notice what Jesus said in verse 28? Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. What is Jesus saying in that? This is what he's saying. The law is the way of life, but not the way to life. You should live that way, but you'll never be saved that way. 
Now listen to me. He's trying to push this guy right over the edge. Just as these commandments push us over the edge. If you understand the commandments, if you understand the great, the great commandment and the great commission, you're going to come to terms with that and you're going to say, wow, there's no way I even come close to that. And that's what Jesus is ultimately trying to do with this guy. And, and what he's wanting this guy to understand and what he wants us to understand that, yeah, yeah, you should live that way, but you'll never be saved that way. And when you understand and embrace God's outrageous love for you, of course you're going to love God with all of your heart and your neighbor as yourself. Only someone who has never encountered God or not living in the reality of his love would do otherwise. He's just saying, this is said, this is not a said faith, this is a real faith. And someone who's living in the reality of God's amazing love is going to head down this path of loving God with all their heart and loving their neighbor as themselves. And yet none of us do that. Notice what the what the lawyer and how he responds in verse 29. But the lawyer wanting to justify himself. Why was he wanting to justify himself? He was feeling pretty uncomfortable here at this point. Okay. <laughs> I don't live up to that standard, but let me, let me just clarify. Let me justify myself here. And he said, well, who is my neighbor? Because the premise of his life was God will accept me if I'm virtue enough. And quite frankly, I'm pretty doggone virtuous. I mean, that's kind of the attitude that this guy has here. Now, you've heard me use this uh, illustration before. Let me use it again because it's very uh, predominant in, in American culture if you were to ask the average American if they're going to heaven or what, what is going to happen to them when they die, what would most of them respond? They would say that they are going to heaven. Would, would you, how many would agree with that? That that's typically what most Americans... And then if you were to ask them, so what makes you think that you're going to, he- going to heaven? Why is that... Uh, you know, when you die, you're going to heaven, so why are you going to heaven? How would they respond? Because I am basically a... I'm a pretty good person. And then what you want to say is, that compared to who? Compared to what? What's the standard you're working off of? Because I'm thinking, I know you really well, and I'm a whole lot better than you, and that if you're going to make it, then I know for sure I'm going to make it, but I just want to know what the standard is, okay? Maybe you shouldn't say that to your friend, but hey, maybe, maybe you should to get them to start thinking about what is the standard. Now, here's their standard. Their standard is in comparison to something or someone else. Their standard probably isn't loving God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving their neighbor as themselves, as it says here. Their standard is something else out there. But when you bring them back to this standard, they go, wow, I don't even come close. And that's what this guy should have said. But he's trying to justify himself. One of my favorite stories uh, on, this, uh, on this topic is uh, the story of two notorious and wicked brothers who terrorized a small Midwestern town. And when one of the brothers died, he became... Uh, it became the responsibility of the other to make uh, funeral arrangements. And uh, he could not find a pastor anywhere in the county who would agree to do the funeral. It was not because the pastors lacked compassion, but because of the unusual request made by the surviving brother. He wanted the pastor to say of the deceased, he was a saint. And of course, no pastor would do anything so dishonest. So in desperation, the brother went around and offered $1,000 to any pastor who would say the words. And uh, one pastor finally agreed to do so. He was a prominent pastor of a prestigious church, and his agreement of this sent a shockwave through the county. 
And uh, people came to the funeral, not because they cared anything about the dead guy. They wanted to see if this pastor was going to truly compromise himself. The pastor stood at the pulpit and delivered the epitaph without even a stutter. And he said, we all know that Charlie here was a wicked man. He was foul, twisted, perverse, and full of the devil. But compared to his brother, he was a saint. We all have a tendency to overrate ourselves when we compare ourselves with each other. But how do we measure up to the standard, to this standard? Now, here's, here's when you, you know, you'd think, well, maybe Jesus is going to cut him some slack, but he doesn't because here this guy is wanting to justify himself, and Jesus takes him even that much, makes it that, he raises the bar that much higher. Because when the guy says, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus goes into this story of, of who his neighbor is. And you'll notice that the priest and the Levite, which are those that are part of, you know, this Jewish culture that typically would help the poor and the needy, what do they do when they see this needy guy on the, on the side of the road? They go on the opposite side. They say, oh, I, I, I didn't see him. We're just going to keep walking. And yet it was this Samaritan that saw this guy and was moved with compassion and then began to reach out to this guy. By the way, that's faith. We talked about the difference between a said faith and a real faith. See, see real faith is, is truth entering the head, igniting the heart, and outworking through the hands. So true faith is more than just an agreement with facts in the head. Oh, yeah, Jesus died on the cross for me, but it's an appetite for God in the heart that so fills your heart. It so rocks your world spiritually and overwhelms you the greatest message you've ever heard, that it moves you out to want to tell the world about Jesus. Declaration, you know, declaration and demonstration of the gospel through your life. So what does a gospel neighbor do? And so we get three things from what this good Samaritan did, and we can look at our own lives because now he just, he takes us even, he, he raises the bar and makes it even that much more difficult for us. They meet needs with loving deeds, so it needs to be a good Samaritan, without limits to the who, without limits to the who, without limits to the when, without limits to the how much. Let me go back to the very first one, without limits to the who. It's natural to want to help people who are like you. It's natural to want to help people who you like and like you. But Jesus puts together a Jew and a Samaritan. This guy that was asking the questions was a Jew. He was a religious Jew. And who does he have on the path that goes along and helps this guy that had fallen to robbers? It's a Samaritan. And Samaritans hated Jews, and Jews hated Samaritans. They, were, they despised each other. And Jesus uses this Samaritan. And, and so what he's telling us here is that your neighbor is anyone you come in contact with who lacks the basic resources, even if they are of a hated race, or of another faith. So you, you, this guy's reaching out. He doesn't even know who this guy is, but he's reaching out without limits to the who, but also without limits to the when. Jesus put this man on a familiar stretch of the road. It's called the pass of the blood. Anybody in their right mind would, would avoid this pass, this, this road, this stretch of road. And so it would have been easy for this Samaritan, any, any other say, uh, Anybody responsible wouldn't take this path. I'm not going to get involved. He should know better. It's just going to, 
you know, it, it's, I'll have to risk my life to go over there and help him, but this guy didn't do that. And you'll notice that on, on your notes that I gave you some causes of poverty or causes of, you could just say causes of problem. There are typically three causes when people are, are having problems. It's, it, sometimes it can be injustice and oppression. That's one. Second one would be circumstantial calamity. And then the third one would be personal failure. Now, here's how we're wired up. For the most part, we don't have a problem reaching out to people who have experienced or fallen prey to injustice and oppression or circumstantial calamity. But when it comes to personal failure, don't we struggle with that? It's like, I'm not going to help them out. They go to Starbucks every day. They need to stop going to Starbucks every day. Or they need to stop spending their money so, in such a crazy, radical way. Or they brought that onto themselves. They just need to face the music. They need to just deal with it. I mean, don't we kind of do that? And yet, what's, what's interesting is that many times the people that we help here at Desert Breeze, it can be a combination of all, all three of those, injustice, oppression, circumstantial calamity, and personal failure. Let me ask you this. And, and, and when we say that, and, I, and I'm not in any way telling you um, to enable people in their dysfunction. Certainly, and when we do our benevolence fund and we help out a lot of people we don't, uh, we, we try to bring them in, we help them more than just giving them money or turning on their lights or, or giving them food on their table. It's much more than that. And I think we're responsible to do that. We just don't hand out money indiscriminately is what I'm saying. And yet, honestly, when we look at people's lives, we could certainly see a pattern of all those and sometimes even their own irresponsibility, but sometimes our reaching out to them, even in the midst of their irresponsibility, we have to do that so that we can get their attention by... Um, meeting needs with loving deeds so that they can hear the message of the gospel to make them more responsible. You guys tracking with me? And, and by the way, let me ask you this. So I don't like to give to anybody unless they really deserve it. Is that what you're saying? When we, when we you know, they've got to at least try to earn it. Well, let me ask you about you. Did you deserve the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross for you? No. No, no, if it was based on any of us deserving it, none of us would ever get it. But while we were still sinners, undeserving, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 8. Oh, my goodness. And so when that rocks your world, even when it seems as though people are undeserving, you give. You, you graciously extend your life for them so that you can build a bridge of credibility and love so that maybe, possibly, maybe you can speak the truth of the gospel to them. And it takes time sometimes to win, win that credibility, to develop that trust in someone's life. And so, without limits to who, without limits to when, without limits to how much. Look at verses 35 and 30, uh, 34 and 35. How much does this guy give? He went to him... And bound up his wounds, so he gives, he helps him, pouring on oil and wine. That cost him. Then he set him on his own animal, so that's at his own expense. Now he's going to have to walk the animal with this guy on his animal. And brought him to an inn, that cost him, took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii. How much is a two denarii? Anybody? You guys should know this. You spend this at Starbucks every day. One denarii is one day's wages. You spend that at Starbucks every day. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm going to get a drink of Starbucks. 
One day's wages. So how much do you make a day? 100 bucks a day? 200? So it's taking a day's wages. No, two days' wages. And then notice what he says here. He says this. So he brought him to denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Wow. So, what does a gospel neighbor do? They meet needs with loving deeds, without limits to the who, without limits to the when, without limits to the how much. Here's what uh, C.S. Lewis says, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I am afraid that only, the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. Tim Keller puts it this way, there ought to be things we should like to do and cannot because our charitable expenditures excludes them. Do you hear what he's saying? That, yeah, I would like to buy that nicer car, but I've chosen not to and buy this used car so that I can give money to, to help the poor. That's what he's saying. That there are things that I have restricted in my life so that I can be generous over here and help others. That's what he's saying. Okay, so let me ask you this. How are you doing? Pretty crappy right now, Pastor Ray. Maybe you wouldn't use that language. You're better than I. That's what I would say. Because when I went through this, I, I, I thought, I don't even come close to that. I want to, but I don't. And, uh, I mean, let me, give you, let me give you a couple more illustrations here just to really drive you deeper into guilt and shame. Um, actually, that's not where I'm trying to take you. Please forgive me for that. But it probably is, and then we'll correct that as we move on. But uh, I gave you a couple cross-references here, and one is uh, Matthew 25, 31 through 46. And uh, it's the final judgment day. Did you know that when you study through the Gospels and the, the Gospel writer Matthew gives us kind of a look into the Gospel, into the judgment day, that one of these days all of us will stand before God? And this particular, on judgment day, God will separate the sheep from the goats. How many are familiar with that, with kind of that parable or that that story. It is frightening. It's scary because this is what happens. This is what he does. He separates the, the sheep from the goats. So basically he's saying, said faith, said faith. Oh, here's real faith. But you that have the said faith, you said you believe in me. You are the goats. And how does he make a distinction? This is what it says there. I'll summarize it. He says, when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. And the goats will respond, when were you hungry? And he said, when you failed to do it to the least of these, you failed to do it to me. You were like the Levite and the priest who saw the needs but just kind of ignored it and walked on the other side of the road. Matthew seven seventeen through 20, it says this, you, you can know a tree by its fruit. So does the fruit make the tree alive? No. It only shows that it's alive. So it goes back to what we said at the very beginning. Said faith, real faith. Real faith? Yeah. Justice is a sign of justification. Real faith. So here's the difference between um, said faith, real faith. Real faith is someone that they love God so much that it dominates their solitude. They love God so much that they're beginning to 
find out that they have contentment regardless of the circumstances because they have, they have what they most want, and that's God. Real faith is someone who loves their neighbor just as if, as if what their neighbor would. They rejoice with those that rejoice. They, they grieve with those that grieve. See, that's, they pour their lives out to God and to others. How in the world are you going to get anybody to do this? Look at verses 36 through 37. I mean, this is where he just like kicks him right over the edge where Jesus says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And, and the lawyer uh, says, um, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. What was Jesus doing with that? Was he teaching some sort of moralism? No. This guy should have fallen on his face before Jesus and said, I can't. What can I do? What do I need to do to be saved? See, see well, all of this should drive us to our face and into the arms of Jesus. I can't. I don't live up to that. I'm a long ways from that. Right on. You're right where you need to be. In fact, take a look at this on your notes. It's, Until you are crushed by the sight of the mercy God requires... You will not be humble enough to receive the mercy God offers. You guys tracking with me? Here it is. When you look at the cross, when you look at the standard of the gospel of Jesus Christ, when you look at the law, this is what you should. This is the first thing. I am more sinful than I ever dared to think. But I am more loved than I ever dared to dream. See, when you understand your sinfulness and it makes you appreciate that much more the grace of God, that, my friends, is what transforms our heart. I'm sinful, I don't even come close. Yes, but he lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died. He gives it to us. Remember, it's not based on, on your performance. Remember what we said at the very beginning? All other religions say, live as you should and God will accept you. It's not that. You can't do that. You've already blown it. But Christianity says God accepts you, therefore you will live as you should. It transforms your heart. When you recognize, I'm sinful, but I'm unbelievably loved. And to the degree you see your sinfulness, to the degree that you understand that you're a trophy of God's grace. There's an interesting uh, story in Luke 7, chapter 7, but 747, it basically says, whoever is forgiven much loves much. One of the reasons why we don't love Jesus much is because we don't realize how much he really has forgiven us and how far we fall short of the standard, and that's what ultimately transforms our lives. So here's the next question. Why should I be a gospel neighbor? You only have two answers, guilt or grace. Turn to the folks next to you and see which one is that. Is it guilt or grace that should motivate gospel neighboring? And try to define the difference between the two because it is critical that you know the difference between guilt because this isn't about guilt. I was just kidding with you earlier about trying to drive you by guilt and shame. That's not what this is about. It's about grace, but what's the difference? Real quick, discuss it with the folks sitting around you. Okay, why should I be a gospel neighbor? Is it guilt or grace? Yell that to me. Grace. Do you know the difference? 
Do you know when you're being motivated by guilt and being motivated by grace? You need to know the difference. I've, I've seen this happen. I certainly have fallen, have been guilty of this, but I've seen churches and pastors oftentimes motivate people out of guilt. It's not ever to be motivated out of guilt, but grace. Look at the difference here. Guilt is have to. It's willpower. And there's a different forms of it. There's a secular morality. What we're talking about is morality here, secular morality. Hey, if you're a decent person, you would help out. That's a secular morality. Religious morality goes like this. Hey, God commands you to help. Guilt is you have, you have so much, they have so little, so you should give some of yours away. Guilt will not get you to where you need to be as it relates to the gospel and the Christian life. See, the, guilt is about a moral restrained will, fear and pride motivated. But grace is about a supernaturally transformed heart grace, want to, God's power. Take a look at this. Meets people's needs around you with such cost and sacrifice that people will need to hear the gospel just to make sense out of your life because it is so inexplicable. Are you perfect in that? No, not by far. And yet there's something that drives you and pushes you. It's the love of Christ and His grace for you. You will never be a grace-motivated neighbor until you are a recipient of grace-motivated neighboring through the great Samaritan Jesus in whom the Good Samaritan points to. Let me give you a comparison contrast here. The Good Samaritan was moved with compassion for the man who had fallen among robbers. When Jesus came to our place in the road, He had compassion on us because we had fallen among the thief who comes to kill, steal, and destroy, John 10.10. It's interesting, the word compassion that's used there in verse 33 is used to describe Jesus more than any other word in the Gospels. And the word compassion means it's just this gut ache. It's just this, oh, oh, I want so desperately for my friends and my family members to know Jesus. It's anguish. The Good Samaritan was risking his life to help the man. Jesus didn't just risk his life, but he gave his life for us. The Good Samaritan set the man on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Jesus set us up in his place of righteousness and took our place on the cross bearing our sin, taking care of us for all eternity. The Good Samaritan spared no expense, paying two days of wages and promised whatever else it may cost to take care of this man. Jesus' payment for our sins on the cross was indispensable and infinitely and eternally costly. It says in 2 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 8 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor so that through his poverty we might become rich. Let me conclude with a story here. This is from Philip Yancey. What's so amazing about grace, his book, talks about how Jesus often used a picture of wedding a wedding banquet to describe the church. Accompanied by her fiancé, a woman went to the Hyatt Hotel in downtown Boston to order what was supposed to be their wedding banquet. They poured over the menu, made selections of china and silver, pointed to the pictures of flower arrangements they liked. They both had expensive tastes. The bill came to $13,000. After leaving a check for half that amount, as a down payment, the couple went home to flip through books of wedding announcements. The day the announcements were supposed to hit the mailbox, the potential groom got cold feet. I'm just not sure, he said. It's a big commitment. Let's think about this a little bit longer, and he dumped his fiance. When his angry 
fiance returned to the Hyatt to cancel the banquet, the events manager could not have been more understanding. The same thing happened to me, honey, she said, and told the story of her own broken engagement. But about the refund, she had bad news. The contract is binding. You're only entitled to $1,300 back. You have two options, forfeit the rest of the down payment, which is thousands of dollars, or go ahead with the banquet. I'm sorry, really I am. It seemed crazy, but the more the jilted bride thought about it, the more she liked the idea of going ahead with the party. Not a wedding banquet, mind you, but a big blowout. Ten years before, the same woman had been living in a homeless shelter. She had gotten back on her feet, found a good job, set aside a sizable nest egg. Now she had this wild notion of using her savings to treat the down and outs of Boston to a night on the town. And so it was. In June of 1990, the Hyatt Hotel in downtown Boston hosted hosted a party such as it had never seen before. The hostess changed the menu to boneless chicken in honor of the groom, she said. She sent invitations to rescue missions and homeless shelters. That warm summer night, people who were used to peeling half-mud pizza off the cardboard dined instead on chicken cordon bleu. Hyatt waiters in tuxedos served hors d'oeuvres to senior citizens propped up by crutches and aluminum walkers. Bag ladies, vagrants, and addicts took one night off from hard life on the sidewalks and outside and instead sipped champagne and ate chocolate wedding cake and danced to big band melodies late into the night. Not an amazing story? She took the pain and allowed God to recycle it and used it to minister to others. And that's what he has done right here at Desert Breeze over and over again. This is a beautiful picture of, of the church, a place where, where God's grace flows, where God's grace flows. That's what we want to be here at Desert Breeze. And I think it's happening. In fact, let me, let me share with you what I shared a couple weeks ago of just all the places that, that where God is using us together to minister to people. Now, we don't have a lot of opportunity to, to minister to the homeless, though we do. We, we do minister to the homeless, and we have people that will come in, probably have more when we get into our permanent location over there, but we do minister to them. But a lot of the needs that are predominant in this culture here are what you're going to hear that we do. For instance, weekend services right here so people can encounter Jesus. Children's ministry. The fall festival is coming up. That little brochure, you can hand it out to families with friends, to bring them over to, to a good, safe place that maybe if they don't know Jesus, they can come to know Jesus or at least get to know some people that know Jesus that can eventually tell them about Jesus. Youth ministry, Young Life, right on this campus, we have a Young Life group that meets to reach the kids on this campus and their parents in this neighborhood. Uh, the retreats, backdraft, college group, the way, life group, celebrate recovery, healing from the inside out, grief share, mending the soul, men's fraternity, Women's Ministry, True Woman 101, Game of Life, Servant Leader and Mentoring, Epic Ministry, uh, Monthly Leadership Development, uh, Marriage Enrichment, Financial Peace University, Parenting Class, Phoenix Rescue Mission. There's a group that goes down to Phoenix Rescue Mission. Crisis Pregnancy, Tala Kenya Missions and Orphanage. In fact, you, I don't know if you noticed in the bulletin, there's a matching donation. Many of you, we all donate. Together we support this. Backpack drive, we already did that. We're coming up to the Thanksgiving food boxes. 
uh, Angel Tree, Global Training Network. We're about ready to send a couple off. They were in the first service to Rwanda. Dale and Teresa Kroll, they're going to be going over there here real soon. Uh, Campus Crusade for Christ, the Patricks made it to Florida, those of us that support them. Isn't that cool? Praise God. Woo! Benevolence Ministry, Paintathon. This next week, you can get involved and paint someone's house in the neighborhood and help with their landscaping and, and another home. Uh, people, they can't do that. We're reaching out. We're ministering. We're good neighbors. Foster parents. There's a number of families that are foster parents here. And this doesn't include ministries indirectly impacted by Desert Breeze. And moving into this new facility is going to give us greater opportunity to meet the needs with loving deeds in our community. So here's, here's how we're ending. You'll notice on the walls over here, did you see how many names are up there? Last weekend we asked you, what... Where has God placed you by divine design within your neighborhood, within your family, within where you work? How many people do you know that don't know Jesus and desperately need to know him? And this is what we ask you to do. Just be aware. Begin with prayer. Just begin to pray for him. We're going to join you in praying for him. And then begin to show them that you care and then look for opportunity to share your faith with them. That's all we're asking. We're going to give you a lot of opportunity as we head towards the end of the year to be able to take brochures with them. This next upcoming big celebration party is an opportunity for you to invite your family and friends to hear some unbelievable testimonies of God's grace in people's lives and watch folks get baptized. And so during this time, as they lead us in song, why, why don't you stand with us right now? And as they do this, if you weren't here last weekend, didn't get a chance to write some names, there are literally thousands of names that we're praying for, that people will come to know Jesus. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. And then we're going to celebrate God's goodness here this morning and His grace. God, thank you so much for this message. It is unbelievably convicting. We don't even come close to this. And yet, Jesus, you lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died. We are more sinful than we ever dared to think, but we're more loved than we ever dared to dream. And that's what transforms our lives. It's not a moral restrained will, but it's supernaturally transformed heart. And you fill our hearts up with your grace, and then that grace overflows within our circle of touch where you have by divine design placed us in our family, in our homes, in our workplace to be those that would not just be a proclamation but a demonstration of the gospel, this life-changing message of Jesus Christ. Help us to do that. We pray, God, we pray for each name, each family that's up there on the wall, on both of these walls, and those that will be added today, Lord, during our time of worship. Lord, I pray that you would open blind eyes and deaf ears, that hearts, those hearts would be smitten by your beauty and your glory. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. Let's celebrate his goodness. Take some time to savor the grace of God. Just soak it in, absorb it. And uh, man, I'll tell you, you'll never be the same as a result of it.